Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Hello and welcome to History Tea Time. I'm Lindsay Holiday, and I'm spilling the tea on history. Black aristocrats and celebrities of 18th century England and France. Popular historic dramas like Bridgerton, Hamilton, and Sandition sometimes receive criticism that their racially diverse casts are historically inaccurate. But in fact, there have been people of color in Britain and France since the Roman times. By the 18th century, the transatlantic slave trade brought more people of African descent to Europe than ever before. In 1768, there were about 15,000 black people living in London. Many were brought there as enslaved servants and sailors, but some had the right mixture of talent and luck to rise to the upper echelons of society, becoming celebrities and even aristocrats. Today, we'll meet seven prominent people of African and mixed heritage who lived in Britain or France in the 18th century. Among them, a king's secret daughter, an icon of both sport and music, two authors who spoke out against slavery, and a lady of wealth and refinement who would have fit perfectly into the world of Bridgerton. Here are their stories. Louise Marie Therese was delivered to the Abbey of Moray in 1665 when she was a young child. Where she came from was the biggest mystery of her life. Many at the Palace of Versailles whispered that the mysterious black nun of Moray was really the daughter of Queen Maria Theresa, the wife of Louis XIV of France. The king was far more interested in his mistresses than his wife. Check out my videos all about it. Once the queen produced an heir, the king only occasionally visited her bedchamber. Left to her own devices, the queen surrounded herself with friends and confidants, including, as was fashionable at the time, an African servant with dwarfism named Nabu. In 1664, Maria Theresa gave birth to her third child, a baby girl who was tragically stillborn. An eyewitness noted the infant appeared a little dark. This is not unusual for babies who have been deprived of oxygen in the womb. But for years after, the word at Versailles was that the princess had not died, but had been secreted away because she was black. Scientifically naive gossip mongers noted the queen's love of hot chocolate and theorized that this was why she had given birth to a dark-skinned child. 
But the prevailing assumption was that the queen had an affair with her attendant, Nabu. It was expected for a king to commit adultery, but for a queen, it was unthinkable. It has since been alleged that Nabu was banished from the palace, or even that he was imprisoned and was the mysterious man in the Iron Mask. But in fact, he continued to work at Louis' court long after the queen's death in 1683. Once Maria Theresa died, rumors about her long-lost child really flared up. Many courtiers went to visit the mysterious black nun of Moray to see if they could identify the queen's traits in her and solve the enigma. Louise had been delivered to the Moray monastery by a trusted royal advisor shortly after the queen's tragic delivery in 1664. The only problem was that she had been a child of about five, not a newborn baby. Historians now think it more likely that the nun was actually King Louis' illegitimate daughter, with an unknown woman of African descent. There are several clues to this theory. One, she was named Louise, after Louis, and the king would never have allowed the child of his wife's lover to be named after him. Two, she was granted a generous allowance of 300 pounds a year from the king's treasury. Three, court artist Pierre Goubert was sent to make a portrait of her titled The Religious Black Princess, which was included with other now-missing documents in a folio titled The Moorish Daughter of Louis XIV. Four, courtiers who met Louise, including Voltaire, remarked on her strong resemblance to the king, not the queen. Louise herself was sure of her royal parentage. When the Dauphin came to meet her, she greeted him as my brother. Madame de Montenon, King Louis's secret second wife, visited her often and attended the ceremony during which she took her holy vows. Louise told Montenon, the trouble which a lady of your station takes to purposely come here and tell me that I am not the daughter of a king persuades me that I am. Louise was no fool. She lived out her life at the convent and died at the age of 68. The mysterious black nun inspired the opening of a less than subtle chocolate factory in the town of Moray. Ignatius Sancho was born aboard a slave ship crossing the Atlantic. His mother died shortly after they arrived in the Spanish colony of New Grenada, modern-day Colombia. His father took his own life rather than live enslaved. When Ignatius was two, his owner took him to Greenwich, England and gave him to three unmarried sisters. They treated him like a pet and named him Sancho after the character in Don Quixote. He was their servant until the age of 20. John, Duke of Montague, was a frequent guest of the sisters, and he was impressed with Ignatius's intellect, frankness, and amiability. He taught Ignatius to read and lent him books from his own library. Education enlightened him to the injustice of slavery, and he ran away to Montague House. There he worked as a butler to Lady Montague and immersed himself in music, poetry, reading, and writing. Ignatius composed at least 62 pieces of music, wrote two plays, and published a book on music theory. Artist Alan Ramsay's Portrait of an African is believed to have been painted of Ignatius during this period. 
Lady Montague died and left Ignatius a generous inheritance. In 1758, he married Anne Osborne, a West Indian woman. He was devoted to her and their seven children. He took a job as a valet to George Montague, the son-in-law and heir of his previous patron. Artist Thomas Gainsborough painted a portrait of Ignatius at the same time the Duchess sat for a portrait. Ignatius became well-known as a man of accomplishment and refinement. He was an outspoken abolitionist. His moving correspondence with novelist Lawrence Stern became an integral part of 18th-century anti-slavery literature and brought him notoriety. At 45, he bought a house and grocery store in the upmarket London neighborhood of Mayfair. His shop sold tobacco, sugar, and tea, goods which were produced by enslaved people in the West Indies. As a landowner, Ignatius had the right to vote at Westminster and was the first known person of African descent to cast a ballot in a British general election. He was a tall, big man and was noted for his warmth and charm. He was friends with many great thinkers, artists, and politicians of the day, including James Fox, who oversaw a bill in 1806 to prohibit British subjects from participating in the slave trade. Ignatius died of gout at the age of 50 and was the first person of African descent to have an obituary published in British newspapers. Actor Patterson Joseph has written a play and novel about Ignatius Sancho's life. Joseph Bologna, Chevalier de Saint-Georges, was born in 1745 on the Caribbean island of Guadeloupe. His father was a French plantation owner who raped his wife's 16-year-old enslaved maid. Joseph's mother, Nanon, was of Senegalese origin. When Joseph was seven, his father took him to France. Back in 1315, King Louis X decreed that any enslaved person setting foot on French soil was free. Of course, this did not apply to France's overseas colonies, where slavery built many fortunes back in the motherland. Now free, Joseph enrolled in boarding school. Two years later, his father returned to France with Nanon, who was reunited with her son. At 13, Joseph was enrolled in fencing school. He was immensely talented and defeated far more experienced fighters. He was entered into a highly publicized duel against the famed fencing master of Rouen. Supporters of slavery bet heavily on the master, while abolitionists bet on Joseph. Joseph won the match. His prowess earned him a place as a personal bodyguard to King Louis XV and the title Chevalier, the French equivalent of a knight. His father died and left he and his mother comfortably provided for. Next, he became famous for a second talent, music. He was a gifted violinist. His solos enraptured especially the feminine members of the audience. He composed numerous string quartets, sonatas, and symphonies, as well as plays and ballets. Beethoven held him in high regard. He became conductor of the Concert Olympique. Queen Marie Antoinette was a fan and would often sneak into performances unannounced. 
Joseph was the 18th century equivalent of a rock star. He was a hero to young sportsmen and musicians, and attended balls and salons with a fashionable set. He loved and was loved by many ladies, but his mixed heritage meant that he could not marry a woman of his own rank. The love of his life was Marie-Josephine de Montalembert, who was married to a much older general. Marie-Josephine gave birth to Joseph's child, but her husband took her and the baby away, and the child died. Joseph mourned deeply the loss of his love and the son he never met. It was likely the general who sent a band of six men to attack him in the night while he was leaving a party. They beat the chevalier and a friend with sticks, but they were able to fend off the assailants. Joseph rejected the advances of famed dancer Marie-Madeleine Guimard, but she sought revenge when he was proposed as the new director of the Paris Opera. Marie-Madeleine and two of her fellow divas petitioned the queen, writing that their honor could never allow them to submit to the orders of a mulatto. His operatic ambitions came crashing down. The Chevalier instead took a position as the director of the Duc d'Orléans' private theater. There he lodged and worked with a young Mozart. At 45, Joseph wholeheartedly embraced the French Revolution, which advertised equal rights to all. Revolutionary leaders sent him to London, where he performed fencing exhibitions for King George III and the Prince of Wales. He fought a match with the famed Chevalier Dion, whom you can learn more about in my Transgender Nobles video. But Joseph also had a secret mission, to consolidate abolitionist support in London. While walking to his lodgings, he was attacked by assassins on a mission to stop his anti-slavery activities. But the famed fencer fought them off. Joseph returned to France with a bad taste for politics. He decided to fight for his ideals directly and signed up with the Revolutionary Army. He was appointed Colonel of the first all-black regiment in Europe, which became known as the Légion Saint-Georges. But Joseph was caught up in the infighting among revolutionary leaders. He was stripped of command and imprisoned for 18 months. His loyal men called for his release, but he was not allowed to return to the army. Despondent, he traveled to the Caribbean island of Saint-Dumont to fight in support of the enslaved people in what became known as the Haitian Revolution. After two years there, the Chevalier returned to Paris. He died of gangrene at the age of 53 in 1799. He did not live to see the full abolition of slavery in French colonies in 1848. Joseph Bologna is the subject of the 2023 film Chevalier. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, 
an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. Have you ever wondered what really happened to Amelia Earhart or the lost colony of Roanoke? Do you ever find yourself scouring the internet for vicious Victorians and their murders by gaslight? Or perhaps you're just sick and tired of women being constantly misrepresented or plain lied about throughout history. If so, join me, Katie Charlwood, history harlot and reader of books on Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. Part of the Area of Media Network. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Adios, au revoir, au revoir, zen, my friends. Bye bye. I'll be seeing you. Olada Equiano was born in the Kingdom of Benin in modern day Nigeria around 1745. He recalled in his memoir that his father was a village chief who sold prisoners of war and criminals to European colonists. When he was 11, he and his sister were left home alone. They were kidnapped, separated, and sold to slave traders. He tried to escape but was thwarted. He was marched to the coast and put aboard a ship bound for Barbados, then on to the colony of Virginia. There, he was purchased by a lieutenant in the Royal Navy and renamed Gustav Vasa after the 16th century king of Sweden. Olada refused the new name and was beaten until he accepted it. The lieutenant took him to Europe to act as his valet while he fought in the Seven Years' War with France. During several battles, young Olada hauled gunpowder to the gun decks. The lieutenant sent him to England to attend school, but when he was 18, the lieutenant sold him again and he was taken back to the Caribbean. Because he was literate, Olada worked as a secretary and assistant to the merchant who owned him on his trade routes up and down the East Coast. The merchant was a Quaker and allowed him to read the Bible and engage in profitable trading of his own. He promised that for his purchase price, 40 pounds, about $10,000 today, he could purchase his freedom. He did so at the age of 21. The merchant encouraged him to stay on as a business partner, but after he was nearly kidnapped and sold back into slavery in Georgia, he decided America was too dangerous. He journeyed to England and continued to work aboard ships. He served as a deckhand on an expedition to the North Pole. Next, he moved to Central America and managed enslaved people on a sugar plantation. He returned to England at the age of 37, married Susanna Cullen, and they had two daughters. He gave lectures about his experiences of slavery and influenced people and politicians to fight for its end. 
all this time he had been using the name Gustav Vasa, but in 1789 he published his autobiography, The Interesting Narrative of the Life of Olada Equiano, the African. The memoir was a bestseller in the UK, Russia, Germany, Holland, and the United States. It was one of the first widely read books written by a person of African descent. It fueled the growing anti-slavery movement and was a financial success, making Olada a wealthy man. He was a community leader among the black citizens of London and worked to improve opportunities for them. During the American War for Independence, the British Army recruited enslaved people by offering them freedom, passage to London, and pensions. When the war was lost, the Redcoats came through with the freedom and passage, but not the pensions. Thousands were stranded in London, unable to find work and with no social safety net, and the government was eager to get rid of them. A scheme was hatched to ship them to a newly established colony on the west coast of Africa, Sierra Leone. Olada was recruited to manage supplies for the expedition, but he realized that the colony's climate was dangerous and he spoke against the plan. He was dragged in the paper as a whistleblower. But he had been right, and the expedition turned tragic. Of the 400 colonists sent to live there, only 60 were alive five years later. Olada's wife, Susanna, died at 34. Olada himself died a year later in 1797, age 52. His obituary was published in newspapers on both sides of the Atlantic. Dido Elizabeth Bell was born in 1761 in the British West Indies. Her mother, Maria Bell, was an enslaved African woman. Her father was naval officer Sir John Lindsay, a member of Clan Lindsay and a prominent British aristocratic family. When John returned to England, he took four-year-old Dido with him. He left her with his uncle, William Murray, Earl of Mansfield, and his wife Elizabeth. The Murrays, who had no children of their own, raised Dido and her orphan cousin, Lady Elizabeth, at their palatial manor, Kenwood House, outside of London. The cousins were educated together, a remarkable double portrait of them hints at their close bond. Dido was treated like the rest of the family, given a fine bedroom and fashionable clothes. Guests at the manor noted 10-year-old Dido's excellent recitation of poetry. Once, when Americans came for dinner, she did not dine with the guests, but appeared later to take coffee with the ladies. It is not clear if this was so as not to offend the guests, or so that they would not have the opportunity to be rude to Dido. In her late teens, Dido took over management of the estate's dairy and poultry yards, a typical occupation for noble ladies. She also acted as a secretary to Lord Mansfield, a job which would have usually been done by a man. Lord Mansfield was Lord Chief Justice of England and Wales. In 1772, he ruled in a landmark case of an enslaved man named John Somerset, whose owner wanted to send him back to the West Indies for sale. Lord Mansfield ruled in Somerset's favor, thus setting him free. 
surely his experience in raising Dido had some influence on his decision. His judgment was taken by abolitionists to mean slavery was abolished in England, though it was not actually abolished throughout the British Empire until 1833. Even then, former slave owners were compensated by British taxpayers for the loss of their human property. When Dido was 27, her father, who had since become an admiral, died and bequeathed her 500 pounds. Five years later, Lord Mansfield died. In his will, he unequivocally confirmed Dido's freedom and bequeathed her another 500 pounds plus a 100 pound annuity. Now a woman of independent means, Dido married Frenchman Jean d'Avignere. The couple bought a house in London and had three sons. Dido died at the age of 43 of an unknown cause. She is the subject of the 2013 film, Belle. Jean Amilcar was born in 1781 in Senegal on the west coast of Africa, at the time a French colony. He was enslaved and at the age of six was taken to France and presented to Queen Marie Antoinette as a gift. The queen had recently lost her youngest child, Sophie, at just 11 months. To ease her heartache, she had taken to adopting orphan children. She took in seven, including Jean. Now that he was on French soil, he was free, and the queen had him baptized. He and three of her other adopted children did not live at the palace with the queen's biological children. Instead, she paid for them to attend boarding school. Jean remained there for five years. When the French Revolution broke out, the queen kept up tuition payments for as long as she could. But eventually, revolutionaries arrested the royal family and stopped the funds. And 11-year-old Jean was expelled. One of his teachers took him in and continued his education. Jean had a talent for drawing and at 15 was accepted to the Lyoncourt Academy in Paris with a scholarship. But he died of illness in a hospital in Paris later that same year. Thomas Alexandre Dumas was born in 1762 on the French colonial island of Saint-Domingue modern-day Haiti. His father, Alexandre Anton, was the eldest son of the Marquis de la Paterie. He arrived in the Caribbean as part of the French army. He soon left his post to work on plantations. There he purchased an enslaved woman named Marie Cassette Dumont and forced her into a sexual relationship. She gave birth to Thomas Alexandre and two or three daughters. After Anton's parents died, he returned to France to claim the family title and chateau. He took his son with him, but sold his daughters and their mother. In order to get his son off the island, Anton had to sell him to a captain and then buy him back when they arrived in France. Thomas Alexandre attended an aristocratic school in Paris. He learned fencing from the Chevalier de Saint-Georges. His father was flush after the sale of their ancestral home, and Thomas Alexandre lived the life of a gentleman of leisure, even though he was his father's eldest son. Because he was illegitimate and mixed race, he did not stand to inherit the family title. 
When his father remarried, his allowance was cut, and he joined the army. Most young men of noble birth were commissioned as officers, but Thomas Alexandre's mixed race made this impossible. He instead enlisted as a private. His father, appalled that the noble name of de la Patrie would be dragged through the lowest ranks of the army, insisted his son use his mother's name, Dumas, meaning of the farm. Anton died before he saw the decorated hero his son would become, and the fame brought the name Dumas. Unaided by nepotism, Thomas Alexandre climbed the ranks through sheer talent. He served under the Marquis de Lafayette during revolutionary riots in Paris. At 31, he was the first person of color to be promoted to brigadier general in the French army. His victories in battle opened up the Alpine Pass so Napoleon could take over Italy. Austrian soldiers nicknamed him Schwarzer Teufel, or the Black Devil. The French called him Horatius, after the hero who saved ancient Rome. Thomas Alexandre married Marie-Louise Laboret and bought a 30-acre farm for them to raise their three children. Next, he was appointed a commander of the cavalry in Napoleon's conquest of Egypt. Conditions were poor on the hot desert march to Cairo, and many soldiers died. General Dumas complained that the men were growing mutinous, but Napoleon ignored him and ordered him back to France. When he reached the coast, he found that British Admiral Horatio Nelson had destroyed the French Armada. He was forced to take a small merchant ship back to Europe. The vessel began to sink off the coast of Naples, Italy, and had to make an emergency landing. Dumas expected a friendly reception, but discovered the government Napoleon had just founded there had been overthrown. Dumas was tossed in a dungeon by the new king of Naples. His wife petitioned Napoleon to rescue him, but was ignored. He languished in prison for two years until the French retook Naples and he was set free. Malnutrition and possibly poisoning had ruined his physique. He was blind in one eye and deaf in one ear. He was denied the military pension due to him and his family fell into poverty. Thomas Alexandre died of stomach cancer five years later. His son, Alexandre Dumas, used his intellect and talent to rise back out of poverty and became one of France's most illustrious writers. Some of his most famous novels, The Count of Monte Cristo, The Three Musketeers, and The Man in the Iron Mask, were partially inspired by his father's life. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe. I'll be putting out new episodes every Tuesday, revisiting and revamping my most popular YouTube videos, unburying some of my favorite hidden gems, and adding even more fascinating information for your listening pleasure. Want some visuals with your history? Then check out my YouTube channel, History Tea Time with Lindsay Holiday, where you can find hundreds of videos about queens of the world, royal history, women's history, and more. You can also follow History Tea Time on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. This podcast is part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. 
Visit airwavemedia.com to listen and subscribe to other great shows like Queen's Podcast, Ancient History Fangirl, Redacted History, and more.